Tracy McCauley. I'm Nathan Wayne. And I'm Liz Wong. We are cardiology pharmacists, educators, and self-declared literature crusaders. And welcome to CardioScripts, a cardiology podcast brought to you in collaboration with the ACCP Cardiology Practice and Research Network. On this episode of CardioScripts, I am joined by Dr. Noelle Leung, who is a maternal fetal medicine and obstetrics pharmacy specialist at the University of Kentucky. She also serves as an adjunct associate professor at the UK College of Pharmacy and currently chairs the OB and Women's Health Special Interest Group of the Pediatric Pharmacy Association. Her unique practice and background will most certainly bring a lot to today's conversation. So on behalf of Liz, Nathan, and I, I'd like to welcome you to CardioScripts. Great. Thank you so much. Today, I can't wait to get your thoughts on this trial. And given your unique specialty, our audience might have guessed that we will be discussing the treatment for mild chronic hypertension during pregnancy or the CHAP trial. CHAP was a randomized parallel open label trial undertaken with the goal to evaluate antihypertensive therapy compared with control treatment among pregnant women with mild chronic hypertension. Their key inclusion criteria were that patients had to have mild chronic hypertension. It could be newly diagnosed, but that was defined as an elevated blood pressure and previous or current antihypertensive therapy or new chronic hypertension, which was defined as a systolic blood pressure greater than 140 or a diastolic that was greater than 90 on at least two occasions, at least four hours apart for those measurements. One of the key things resulting in exclusion of patients was that their gestational age was supposed to be less than 23 weeks, just so they had long enough follow-up with these pregnant women. The treatment algorithm were essentially giving patients standard therapy as far as receiving either labetalol or extended-release nifedipine, and they could add on amlodipine or methyl dopa if needed. Medication was titrated to a maximum dose before the second agent was added. And it's important to note that our key exclusion criteria were the need for greater than one antihypertensive medication at baseline or secondary hypertension, multiple fetuses, or high risk of illness or complication that could warrant the treatment for lower blood pressure and obstetric conditions that could increase fetal risk. The primary outcome evaluated was composite preeclampsia with severe features, medically indicated preterm birth that was defined as less than 35 weeks of gestation, placental abruption, or fetal or neonatal death. A total of 2,408 women were randomized. The average age of the women included in this evaluation was 32 years old. And I think compared to previous trials, they did a great job enrolling minorities. About half were non-Hispanic Black women with a mean BMI of 37.5. And the baseline blood pressures in these were about 129 for the treatment group and 132 as systolic blood pressure in the control group. So now for our actual results of that primary outcome, 30.2% of the active treatment group and 37% of the control group experienced that composite primary outcome with a number needed to treat of about 15. And of course, this was greatly statistically significant. Secondary outcomes that they evaluated were mostly safety, small for gestational age birth weight, which was defined as less than 10 percentile, occurred in 11.2% of the active treatment group and 10.4% of the control group. So that was not significantly different. And I think it was important to note that actually preeclampsia with severe features was improved with this evaluation. A caution should be done, though, with interpreting of these small secondary outcomes. And important to note, but there was no difference in fetal or neonatal death as well. 
So overall, the interpretation of this trial has been that antihypertensive therapy targeting blood pressures less than 140 over 90 can prevent adverse pregnancy outcomes compared to usual care and does not impact early term delivery or the risk of low birth weight. So Noelle, there's a lot to unpack here, and this is not most of our area of expertise. So I'm so excited to have you join us. Would love to first just get your thoughts on this trial as a whole. Well, thank you so much again for having me. I would be remiss to not point out that this author actually has done a lot of work in this area. He's written a couple of basically landmark trials that have changed our practice and what we're doing. So it is a good study. It was conducted across a lot of centers. One of the main things to remember here, though, is that it's looking at chronic hypertension. So that's really going to impact who you're applying it to and who you're going to set those blood pressure goals for. And then also looking at when they were implementing this, those patients and the exclusion and inclusion criteria, I think are also important for people to evaluate and to consider when they're applying it to their patient population. Yeah. And I think what you're implying there is sort of the generalizability. So I'd like to talk through that a little bit. Over 29,000 patients were screened and less than 10% were ultimately included. So we end up with this just over 2,400 patients. That wasn't their original target. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So that was really interesting actually to, to read. What the safety board had identified halfway through the trial was that the outcome or the combined outcome was happening at a much higher frequency than they anticipated. So they thought that they were only going to have it occurring in uh, about 16% of patients. And as they were going through, they realized it was occurring in up to 30% of patients or at least 30% of patients. So they recommended decreasing their enrollment goal from 4,700 down to an enrollment goal of 2,404 patients. So I think that's important just for us to take away in practice in general is that, you know, this major trial and this provider and researcher that does a lot of research in pregnancy had underestimated this outcome by half, right? So a 16% to a 30%. And I think that highlights some of the importance of maybe implementing these findings for the benefit of the patients, because it is happening a lot more frequently than maybe we originally thought. Great. Very good point. Let's talk about the blood pressure being either too low or too high, which was one of the key exclusions that was implemented there. So what's the current guidance on treatment of blood pressure? Is there a too low of a number (laughs) in pregnancy? Is there too high where you would consider it's absolutely unethical not to start treating this, that kind of thing? Right. So we definitely use for the severe end, that's more established and kind of cut and dry. 160 over 110, you're going to definitely treat any patient, right? And so for our patients at any point in time in pregnancy, if they present with a 160 over 110 and it's kind of that sustained blood pressure, we're going to treat it. We're going to emergently bring it down and start some kind of maintenance therapy. Where you get into more of the sticky area is, you know, if it's a chronic hypertension versus a gestational hypertension and then throwing preeclampsia into the mix. So a lot of practitioners may let blood pressures ride into the 140s over 90 area and then not start treatment until you're having repeat blood pressures greater than 150. And that a lot of that has just been based around this idea of placental perfusion and maintaining good placental perfusion. And a lot of that also applies to gestational hypertension, where you're thinking that it's the angiogenesis of the placenta. 
So having poor angiogenesis, poor spiral artery development, that's leading to this blood pressure. But if you drop the blood pressure too much, you're going to lead to impaired placental perfusion and i.e. impaired fetal perfusion. But generally we would always treat at greater than 160 over 110, which is what is talked about in the trial that they're trying to establish that with these chronic hypertension patients, early on, we should be targeting lower goals that are much closer to what you would treat a standard patient with hypertension. And does this, these findings and the safety for the fetus and birth weights and gestational development, does that make you feel more comfortable treating in that mild hypertension range? Yeah, I think so. Especially again, starting early on, right? So these patients are going to be the ones that are picked up in clinic. They're not necessarily going to be the patients that are presenting to a labor and delivery unit, like what I primarily work on. So this is, I think, more impactful for establishing your clinic practices and who you should be screening for and what you should be doing at that 20-week anatomy scan appointment. If they also have hypertension, we should be talking about starting therapy there versus they're coming in at 35 or 36 weeks. It may be a moot point to try to dramatically lower their blood pressure at that point down to into the 130s because you may be impairing the placental perfusion. And one of the things that drives IUGR, and this is getting a little bit you know, deep into the weeds, but it's just when babies have to fight that resistance also from the maternal perfusion, it can start leading to heart failure in the baby. And so if you overdrop the perfusion to the baby, it's just going to make that worse as well. You know, this study was during a key time of of development, right? So the average gestational age and enrollment was 15.4 weeks, but there were 40% of patients who were even in the first trimester that were identified. So, you know, we talk in pregnancy for the, the, those of us who aren't in that field a lot in terms of trimesters. So is there a trimester where you feel more or less comfortable with starting therapy? Does this really addressing only the second trimester or would we feel comfortable applying it to the first trimester with 40% of patients in that group? Oh yeah, definitely. If you had a patient early on first trimester, I think that this implies we should be getting control early on. And the earlier that we can have control, probably the better. Now let's talk a little bit about what medications they used. So this treatment algorithm, mostly using nifedipine ER and labetalol, is that what you're seeing as standard practice? And you know, how do you approach this? Yeah. So funny enough, I think a lot of us are taught methyl dopa in school, right? Methyl dopa is what you use to treat hypertension and pregnancy. And while it's safe and mildly effective, we don't use it that often. I've only had maybe three patients in the past three or four years that have been on methyl dopa in the community when they come in to deliver with us. The majority of my patients are always on labetalol and nifedipine. In this study, they did because they were starting so early on in pregnancy in that first trimester They were using labetalol BID and nifedipine extended release once a day, which is standard dosing. But it's important to note they allow the titration of labetalol to go up to TID and nifedipine extended release to be used BID, which is actually standard dosing that you will see in pregnancy towards the end. And and that's just due to the pharmacokinetic changes that we're seeing in pregnancy, right? You have a larger blood volume, you have increased renal perfusion, you have increased drug clearance. So even though nifedipine extended release is normally once a day, we would see spiking of blood pressures halfway through that dosing interval. So pretty standard practice now is to increase to BID. So I think that was appropriate given that they were starting this late first trimester, early second trimester to start with standard dosing and then allow the titration up. 
Yeah, I think it's probably worth reminding folks who haven't thought about this space in a while. Nifedipine is obviously in one of our first pillars of treatment for essential hypertension in all groups. Labetalol is a little strange for us when we think about blood pressure control, but if we remember that has mixed beta effectiveness and alpha, so it is a, a pretty potent like eight to one vasodilator compared to beta blockade. Also, if we're talking about chronic hypertension patients, a lot of these women had hypertension prior to being pregnant. And so this is also a space where we have to think through some of our traditional medicines, especially the RAS inhibitors are teratogenic right. as well. Now with the RAS inhibitors, one of the interesting things is that's really the effects where most of our agents that are teratogenic, we try to stay away from in the first trimester. RAS inhibitors are much more in the second trimester and third trimester, because that's when you actually have kidney development in the fetus happening. So you could, not that we would want the patient to necessarily stay on through first trimester, but you know, if it's not picked up until the eight to 10 week appointment, it's probably not as detrimental as a patient that stays on it until 28 weeks. Some of the other pushback that is kind of mentioned in the article with some of our standard therapies is that association for low birth weight infants. And so that's already adjusted for gestational age, but we have an expected birth weight for a 28 week baby. And we have an expected birth weight for a 35 week baby. And so that was already adjusted for, but what they had noticed was some other antihypertensives specifically like a tunnel and whatnot, was that there was this increase in low for gestational age birth weight at less than 10%. Some of the issues with that are just, is it a process of the disease, right? We already talked about hypertension can cause interuterine growth restriction. So is it a disease process and not controlling the disease well enough, or is it the actual drug that's causing and leading to that? And so I think this study, again, with showing that there was no difference between the two groups, kind of lends the idea is probably not the drug. It's probably more the disease state that's leading to it. Obviously, Tamalol wasn't tested here, but for these two, I think it can reassure us that they're safe for use early in pregnancy. So Noelle, if we're helping in a women's cardiology clinic or referred patients from our obstetrics colleagues, is there any hypothesis you would have or, or maybe a way you could explain why that cohort of newly diagnosed. So the people we just found didn't seem to confer the same benefit as the overall cohort. And again, hypothesis generating smaller group. So I might've answered my own question, but is there anything that would give you pause when this is new in that mild range? Like you said, we trigger the one sixties for sure, but now we're finding a woman who doesn't have preeclampsia, but has an elevated blood pressure. That's never really been treated before. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I don't know if maybe it's just from, you know, if you have chronic hypertension, and you already have maybe some underlying endothelial dysfunction and markers, if that's contributing, and therefore increasing the chance of developing preeclampsia, and so the earlier control is more beneficial versus it's new chronic hypertension because we're dosing it earlier, but you're still just having those physiological changes and the increased level in hormones and so it's not as much of a cardiovascular issue per se, but it's more of just the physiology of pregnancy that's driving an increase in blood pressure. Yeah. You know, I, I think saying if you truly didn't have it before, I think my concern is, and maybe I'm projecting here, maybe you as a mother of three also can project, but I didn't see my primary care doctor much during those, those years. And I think that's pretty true of most women is that their OBGYN sort of becomes their primary care doctor because they're seeing them so frequently. 
And so I get curious on whether or not it was undiagnosed essential hypertension that is now brought to our attention with frequent evaluation, or like you're saying, maybe it's just that pre-hypertensive patient that gets pushed over the edge, given the increase in blood volume and the changes with pregnancy. But I think it's interesting that they didn't have as much of a benefit of treatment as the patients who truly were longstanding chronic, but I think involves more evaluation maybe. Well, that's, that was kind of what I was getting at is that the patients that are chronic and actually have hypertension, maybe unrelated to increasing blood volume and whatnot are going to get more of that bang for the buck for starting antihypertensives early versus someone that's a new diagnosis. And maybe it's because they were just pushed over the edge because they have that increasing blood volume, the increasing cardiac output. But there's so many things and processes that can happen in pregnancy. (laughs) And that's also why, you know, there is that marker of at 20 weeks, prior to 20 weeks, we call you chronic because that's when we think most of the changes are happening. But after 20 weeks, we call you gestational hypertension, right? And so 20 weeks, though, is still kind of an arbitrary point, right? All of those changes are happening kind of in a continuum. Yeah. And maybe with drivers of that primary endpoint being the lower incidence of preeclampsia with severe features and, you know, a demonstrated safety as far as not seeing a decrease in birth weight mean until we know they were part of the cohort and we should treat them the same is probably a reasonable approach. You know, other interesting things to me, I think from a cardiovascular community, we love the idea of collaboration with this patient population, because I think what we're identifying in pregnancy is a pretty high risk primary prevention group. Overall, this cohort was approaching advanced maternal age at an average of 32. They also have what we're calling hypertension. They also, about 15% of them had diabetes. So what do you guys do as far as your approach for collaboration on these patients, maybe after pregnancy? Yeah. So first I want to point out a lot of what the presentation was matches very much what I see in practice. So I think it was a good sample of the general population. And obviously because they were at so many sites and they screened so many women and they even mentioned that even though they had a only like one to 12 enrollment for their screen, that the population they enrolled did match the general background of the population they're screening, right? And so most of my patients are obese. We have a high percentage of patients that do have diabetes. And so for the postpartum or the, even the collaboration during, we normally are talking to like endocrine about these patients. We do If they have hypertension, they're going to be followed up normally at a one or two week appointment to check their blood pressure again, right? Because we anticipate to start coming down on their blood pressure medications postpartum. Normally that's at a one week appointment. Sometimes they'll combine it like they've had a C-section with their two week incision check. And then they will continue to follow that patient. We keep patients in a postpartum category until three months postpartum. So those patients would come back for routine blood pressure checks. At that point in time, if they're still hypertensive after three months, they would probably be transferred either over to a PCP or some kind of, I don't know if specifically a cardiology group for follow-up, but definitely referred back to the PCP for management of that blood pressure. 
And, you know, I, I feel like we're cardio scripts, so we can't get by without at least mentioning there's some aspirin talk in here. Yes, so baseline, yes. it looked like about 45% of the women were on aspirin by the end of the trial, 75% were on aspirin. So just teach us what's the role yeah. of aspirin in pregnancy these days. All right. So I mentioned earlier that there was this angiogenesis issue, and that's what one of the drivers of the hypertension of pregnancy is. And that really is a driver of preeclampsia. And it all has to do with these spiral arteries, and they don't appropriately remodel. And so you have a retention of smooth muscle in there. And that's kind of what's driving all of your hypertension issues. So aspirin has been studied starting it early on. So it normally has to be started between 12 and 16 weeks of gestation to really have a benefit. And it's been used mostly in patients that have either already had preeclampsia with an indicated preterm birth, right? So for a lot of our patients that are preeclamptic, if it gets too severe, we're going to deliver that patient preterm. In this study, they looked at delivering them prior to 35 weeks, but we may be delivering patients at 28 weeks, 29 weeks, because what you'll start to see is mom's blood pressure is so high and that placental resistance is so high that baby is developing, like I said, heart failure, pushing against it. And that's defined by some reverse end diastolic flow, uh, looking in the cord, right? So we look at cord flow. And so that is particularly problematic for the baby. And you can have that indicated birth. So for patients that have already had preeclampsia and a indicated birth prior to 35 weeks or a fetal loss, it's recommended that they start aspirin for future pregnancies. And they start that early, like I said, between 12 and 16, 18 weeks is really where the biggest benefit is going to be. And I think that's why in this study, you probably saw patients that were already on that aspirin early on. A lot of people will also now start it just at baseline for patients that kind of meet a lot of those risk factors, right? So if they are obese, if they do have diabetes, et cetera, they'll go ahead and start aspirin even if they haven't had preeclampsia beforehand as a prophylactic measure to help with that vascularization and to help just promote better development of the placenta. And it has been proven to be beneficial. So that's what we do. I think it's interesting that at the end of the study, it was up at 75%, because I think what people sometimes now do, like I said, the benefit is 12 to 16-ish weeks starting it. But I think people, once they become hypertensive and practitioners get worried about developing preeclampsia, they're adding it on right? So they're adding it on at 22, 23, maybe even 26 weeks, they're adding it on. One of the other things is debatable whether or not it's going to be beneficial at that point, right? So I personally, when I read that, I kind of chuckled to myself. I was like, oh, all these people were adding it on really late. And it's probably not beneficial at that point. But the 40% that had it at the beginning, you know, I think that was very appropriate. And just to further clarify that we're talking about low dose aspirin. So in the range of 75 to hundred milligrams. So yeah, that's currently the standard dose. There are studies out there that are looking at doing uh, 162 a day, comparing that to 81. There's actually a trial I know of where they're doing the dosing and they're not just looking at maternal outcomes, but they're actually biopsying the placenta. So they collect the placenta after delivery to kind of look at what's happening with that angiogenesis to see if they can determine a difference. All right. So any final thoughts, clinical pearls for us? How is this going to impact our practice moving forward? 
So again, I think the idea being, this is a really good intervention to make. I would probably be making this on the clinic side, or if you have a patient that comes to their, you know, cardiology appointment and you're working in the cardiology clinic and they tell you that they're pregnant, I think having those conversations that we need to have early blood pressure control and we should be targeting this less than 140 over 90 as our goal, I think that's completely appropriate. I think that it's going to be harder to apply in the hospital when we're talking about our patients that are later on and you have to take into account the diseases like preeclampsia. But again, I think it just brings to light we can target these lower pressures without impairing fetal development. And we may eventually be able to expand that also to our gestational hypertension patients that are, you know, not developing hypertension until later on. Well, thank you. We really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us and talking about the CHAP trial. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to CardioScripts. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell your friends and subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at CardioScripts and check out our website at cardioscripts.com. The views and opinions are those of the individuals on today's episode. The ACCP Cardiology PRN is not responsible for the presented content or its accuracy.